Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough. I'll be your host of these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. As always, listeners are warned there be spoilers here. Our first guest today is Dr. Nell Sullivan. Nell joined us for conversations Outer Dark, McCarthy's Women Characters, within one of our tribute episodes, among others. Dr. Sullivan grew up in Kentucky, earned a BA in English from Vanderbilt University, earned her PhD in English from Rice University, currently professor of English at University of Houston downtown, where she teaches courses in American Lit and the literature of the American South. A former editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal, she has published extensively on gender and class representations in McCarthy's novels. It's also published essays on Catherine Dunn, William Faulkner, Nella Larson, among others. Her work has appeared in numerous essay collections and in such journals as Genre, Critique, Southern Quarterly, Mississippi Quarterly, and African American Review. Our next guest in this panel is Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield, and former president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. I should say he was our inaugural guest on this podcast. He's the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from the University of South Carolina Press, editor of the Cambridge Companion, Cormac McCarthy. He's written numerous journal articles on McCarthy and other authors of the American Romanticist tradition. Recently, he's the author of the novel Dogwood Crossing. And this past spring, his book, Unguessed Kinships, Naturalism and Geography of Hope in Cormac McCarthy, was released by University of Alabama Press. And last but not least is Marty Priola. Marty is an avid reader, sometime critic, book collector. He graduated from Christian Brothers University of Memphis, Tennessee, the Publishing Institute at University of Denver, and earned his JD at University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee as well. He is the inaugural webmaster of the initial Cormac McCarthy webpage, which continued for a long time as a society page and now as Cormac McCarthy Forums. He's written two entries on McCarthy for Dictionary Literary Biography. His writing has also been featured in exchanges Peter Joseph in Cormac McCarthy's House, Reading McCarthy Without Walls, and in The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses, which he edited and published in his first ebook form. He started the McCarthy website and was has been a member of the society since its inception. So I thought as a starting place, and thank you all for being here, I do appreciate it, and it's kind of late notice as we do this in the record here, just a couple of weeks out from Christmas as we barrel down or 10 days out. So I know it's a busy season for us, and I appreciate you being here. But the book starts as a screenplay, which in many ways is pretty close to the plot of the story, of, or John Grady's part of the story, of Cities of the Plain. And as the screenplay languishes and doesn't get produced anywhere, he goes back and he writes All the Pretty Horses as a prequel. And he follows that up with The Crossing. And then finally, Cities of the Plain. All the Pretty Horses published in 1992, wins the National Book Award. The Crossing's published in 1994. And Cities of the Plain, the, the slimmest of the three, comes out in 1998. So what, what do we make of the whole origin story of the trilogy, and are there any beginning thoughts as we as we think about it? Beginning life as a, I wouldn't call it modern Western because it's set in the era just after World War II, but certainly 
not set back in the 19th century and not dealing with cavalry and battling various Indian tribes or, you know, cowboys shooting each other on the streets of Abilene or anything like that. So what do we what do we make when it's all said and done of the origin story of the Mortar Trilogy? Well, I, I recollect uh, somewhere McCarthy saying to someone in a letter that he had these three books that were written and he was going to go back and redo them all because he because he wasn't satisfied. Mm. So clearly this took a long time and a lot of work and who knows what else he was working on besides them. But I think in some sense they became unified as he kept fooling with them. Right. Well, we know that he's working on the stonemason while he's working on the crossing just because of when they're published. We know that he's working on the passenger while probably he started the passenger before he started these books and then shelved it or kept tweaking it and working on it and then went into these. And maybe we see a little bit of, I don't know, some mild connections from early parts of the older verse parts of the passenger with what's going on in the crossing. I'm not exactly sure. One way it helps is when you know the ending of the story and you're not writing your way into it, it helps a lot with foreshadowing and things like that, doesn't it? So when we get Alejandro's dream and all the pretty horses, then it very much does clue us into what's going to go on in Cities of the Plain. And it adds a little magical realism element, which is always in these books just ever so slightly as much as McCarthy doesn't like that label and always says he's a materialist and so on. There's you know, this prophet, prophetic dreams. There's mm-hmm. strange visitors. And that's not something that only shows up in The Passenger and Stella Maris. Yeah. There's, Billy has that dream where Magdalena comes to him to try to warn him silently that something bad is happening to mm-hmm. John Grady. So it's sort of parallel to Alejandra's dream. There's a lot of dreams around John Grady. but. Yeah, I I just wonder compositionally, he starts with the screenplay, you know, and I think that's kind of telling right there that he imagined it as a screenplay. Right. Rather than a novel first, which, you know, what he really wanted to do was direct. It sort of seems like everything was heading towards film, right? And but it does kind of point out one of the issues that Henry James, I know McCarthy doesn't like Henry James, uh-huh. but that Henry James pointed out in his preface to the New York edition that there's the what he called the necessities of upspringings of the text. Once yeah. he has this story at the end, he has to explain how did these two cowboys get this way? Yeah. And to me, the you know most interesting character in the in the trilogy is Billy. And I think in this if you just took the screenplay that's at San Marcos and read that, you would not like Billy, right? He's not a he's not a really nice guy. So how did he get that way? How did he get to be this kind of like callous cowboy? And that's, you know, where the crossing comes in, sort of. Yeah, just kind of the sardonic older brother type who is too cynical and dark to make any of the mistakes that John Grady and his youthful naivete and kind of blind optimism is going to make. And the, the, the Billy of Cities of the Plain is is not going to make that mistake. But... My own feeling is that the that you have two great novels and one that has great moments, but it's not a great novel. And the, the one that's a lesser book, in, in my feeling, is Cities of the Plain. And it's simply, I think, because it doesn't 
change enough from that initial screenplay to be a book that is truly a bringing together these disparate threads and truly leaving aside the Billy epilogue, which I think is brilliant. You know, Scott, one of the things I think is essential, though, uh, that it's telling about the Billy that we encounter in Cities of the Plain, and I'm thinking of the novel, but but that's certainly anticipated in the screenplay, is that, you know, the Billy we encounter in, in Cities of the Plain is a different kind of Billy, a different face of Billy than the one we encounter in The Crossing. And yet, because his character begins in the screenplay, you have a sense that McCarthy knew that from the beginning, that, you know, it wasn't a, a kind of random evolution from the unconscious, as McCarthy often likes to talk about, that he did have some sense of the various contours of Billy's identity, the sort mm-hmm. of practical man of work, the sidekick, the substantive sidekick, but still the the sort of, you know, brother. But all of that comes Come, we get the Billy of the Crossing late in the novel, and it's there's a sense of of authorial intent. I think that 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 the screenplay makes evident. I was just going to ask Steve if you think if John Grady had somehow survived, would he have become like Billy, jaded and loses idealism and his passions? Is death the thing that saves John Grady from becoming crusty and jaded by all the terrible things that happened to him? That's a great question. I, I, you know, I guess part of me, the part of me that's a little bit sort of John Grady like wants to say, no, it's, it's pretty essential to John Grady's, his, his commitment, romanticism, whatever you want to call it is, you know, pretty essential and fundamental to his character. But then again, Billy, <laughs> you make a world by, from, from, from a Billy's perspective, then that sort of trajectory has to happen a bit to all of us. So I think you're on to something. Yeah, it's a really interesting growth and development. And one of the things I think is very funny about All the Pretty Horses and how you read that novel is the first time you read it and you see John Grady's naivety get him into trouble with Alejandra, and he has this great disappointment in himself sinking to the level of a killer when he's in Satillo prison. And he's this trial by fire, coming of age, you know, 16-year-old turning 17. All that's essential. And you can read it, if you're not reading it carefully enough, to think that it is about a heroic young man who goes through a trial of fire and emerges from it scarred and battered but undefeated. And he will grow into this new world as a, I don't know, as someone carrying the fire to borrow from another book, all the great aspects of previous eras of manhood that we don't see anymore in his father. Except that you get a couple of things at the end of the book. His The sun coppers his face, so he's actually, as many critics have pointed out, more like those Comanche who are no longer here in the same way they were. And the last passage talks about, you know, look, seeing the kind of storm front out ahead of him, and he rides into the world to come in the long shadows and the, the darkening land and all those kinds of things. So there's this idea he's, he's not come out of the storm, he's riding into the storm of what's next. And so the way you read this book after you've read Cities of the Plain is very different. You say, oh, yep, yeah, he never learns that lesson. 
And yep, he he screws up again with Alejandra. And I'll tell you what, he's going to screw up in many same ways a couple years later. And I guess maybe we like about him is that he doesn't become cynical very quickly, mm-hmm. except that there is that weird. It's hard to imagine the first John Grady hanging out in a brothel. Right. Although it does seem that he's gone. He's been pulled along by the older cowboys and is not really participating until he sees Magdalena. And then he, he changes everything. Well, is it that, that John Grady is an idealist and Billy is a realist. And those are two very separate things and, and kind of, opposed to each other but you get a kind of synthesis of yeah. the two but at no point in the crossing is billy a realist no because no. you don't no. go no. you, you don't shoot. save the she-wolf you know you don't you don't save the wolf you don't go back and shoot the wolf you don't trade your rifle for the wolf and take the body off you don't wander around disconsolate for hundreds of pages and then you don't go back to mexico looking for the grave of your brother yeah. If you're a realist, you say, well, if he's he left me and if he's capable, he'll come find me one day. And, and Billy can't leave it at that. And I do think where I like the connections is Billy tries to save Boyd and never can. So then he tries to save John Grady. And it seems like the way he thinks he has to save John Grady is to make him understand the world in a way that Billy understands it. Because if nothing else, Billy survives. Mm-hmm. Boyd doesn't survive. John Grady doesn't survive because they're they're ruled by idealism and romanticism. Certainly, I don't know that Boyd's so idealistic as he is a romanticist. He wants to run off and be Billy the Kid with his sidekick girlfriend, right? You know, back to the dreams. I like Marty's idea of synthesis in realism and uh, and idealism because you know if you the real realist if you really want to look at the words in cities of the plain is eduardo yeah he talks about the the plainness of the world and really makes that distinction between the ideal and the real and yet my contention all along is that even eduardo is not a pure realist because much of what he claims about the world and the contention between him and and john grady is because he loves in his own distorted way, he loves Magdalena too. So he has his own idealist narrative. So I think this notion, I think that McCarthy with the dream sequences, considering the totality of the of the trilogy as a whole, I think he's really challenging any kind of rigid partition between the ideal and the real. And I think that that challenge comes at the end, right? In the long monologue or in the long interchange between him and the man under the overpass. And and if he was having composition of the original passenger and the border trilogy at the same time. I mean, you see that writ large in the passenger with the other kid and the Eidolons being part of this reality and that partition completely breaking down. I just read the epilogue to cities of the plane just, just now. And, and I was totally freaked out when I came across the word Architron. Yeah. It's there. And it's the, it's the guy with the sword who's going to take the head of the dreamer off. And I went, what? <laughs> well, we're talking about dreams. I should point out that Chip Arnold has a formative essay that came out just on the heels of cities of the plane 
called Go to Sleep, uh, Dreams and Visions in the Border Trilogy. And that's the version that came out in Southern Quarterly. I think it was republished under a different title or slightly different title in one of the essay collections in Myth, Legend, Dust or one of those as well. But where that whole notion of the dreaming and the dream is narrative and how these things form, the dreams used throughout the books as, as prophecies show up. John Grady wakes from a dream knowing his father has died. Billy has a dream when his father dies of his father being in the darkness looking for him. We have then the long tale about dreaming at the end of Cities of the Plain. So, and it is always difficult. Diane Luce has written on this too, how narrative it becomes about telling stories is how we form meaning in the world, which is this whole extra level of rich meaning in these books that it's beyond the kind of plot reading of it and, and the plot development of it and the character development that just means, I guess, we can come back to them over and over and over again as well. You know, and I think that when you talk about narrative, and Diane makes makes an excellent point when she raises that, but especially in The Crossing, narrative is bound to memory. Everybody's yeah. remembering something that they're telling someone else. And if you don't mind, let me read a very short passage from toward the end in the interchange between Under the Overpass. Please. The interlocutor says, well said, but what is your life? Can you see it? It vanishes at its own appearance, moment by moment, until it vanishes to appear no more. When you look at the world, is there a point in time when the scene becomes the remembered? How are they separate? It is that which we have no way to show. It is that which is missing from our map and from the picture that it makes. And yet it is all we have. Mm. So it's back to memory, story, narrative being the sort of ground upon which we can we can sort of establish our identity. And in this case, it's in the context of a dream. Mm. There's a another great quote from The Crossing. I'll never find it now, but um, I think it sort of says everything about narrative and dream and memory. Where all is known, no narrative is possible. Mm-hmm. That's what narrative is. It's right. It's filling in. And I'm not an expert on real dream theory, just the Freudian kind, but I think it's still kind of a, a scientific question about how our, our dreams, which are these synaptic impulses, get yeah. narrativized, right? Like, it seems like that's like this instinctual thing that we have, but it's our unconscious trying to make sense of things that don't make sense, right? And certainly in the Kikule problem that McCarthy published in Nautilus, He's obsessed with how the unconscious is working in conjunction with the consciousness, independently of the consciousness, possibly channeling image, you know, information from God in the whatever it is that's going on. He's 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 so interested. And we see it in the trilogy, we see it in the last two books, we also see it in that essay. So it just keeps him fascinated as well. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you guys a question. Who do you see as the central protagonist of the Border Trilogy? Do you see it as John Grady? Do you see it as Billy? Do you see it as both? It just jumps back and forth between them? Or I gave a paper once where I said, if we really reduce this thing to Jungian archetype and the whole Joseph Campbell hero's journey type stuff, which, of course, you can't do with complicated literature in the way that you can with you know, folk tales or whatever, I I would argue that Billy, if we almost considered him as one parts of one person, it works that way. But really, Billy is the the person who grows and comes to understand his failings, and who changes and who continues the journey. And mm-hmm. that that 
ultimately Billy is the true protagonist of the Border Trilogy and not John Grady. John Grady is certainly protagonist of all the pretty horses, and he's got more page time in the first half of Cities of the Plain than Billy does. But I I think when it's all said and done, John Grady is the character who, because he fails to really evolve, ends up stabbed to death in an alley. Well, what was it? That that business from all the pretty horses, the, the world's heart beat at some terrible cost. Yeah. It, it's a dream. I think maybe it's a dream. But it seems to me that the terrible cost is is that John Grady dies. Yeah. He he's the good thing. Mm. What what Billy hangs around to do is sort of witness all that. Right. That that line is actually from when John Grady shoots the doe as mm. he's crossing back from Mexico to Texas. He's hungry and he shoots a small doe and as he kills it and he sees the light go out of the deer's eyes. He feels, you can't say horrified, he's not hanging his head and crying, but he, he seems to have this profound moment of understanding that what he's done is is something significant and, and awful, and that there's a, I don't know, a dark side to the world that we always have to live with and, and find the respect in, in some way or another. There's a passage that I had not noted in The Crossing until sort of this read-through, which I didn't finish, but... I think it was right before the sort of priest tale in the in the second chapter. So Billy has no weapon because he's gotten rid of his gun. And he makes a bow and arrow. And he has it for a while and he kills some stuff with it and eats it. But then he throws it into the river and watches it go away. And there's a whole sort of meditation there about what sort of creature would have done right. that. You know? Well, and just before that scene, he shoots a hawk with it. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't ever find it. Our memory then is we think, and I, I got to tell you, I've got this paper I haven't written yet, but it's in my head about the use of raptors in mm-hmm. McCarthy and particularly owls, hawks, and so on, because those birds particularly show up over and over again. But of course, we're thinking of the, not selling to Byzantium, uh, the second coming, right? right? The falcon, you know, gyres, it, it turns in these circles. And it cannot hear the falconer, and right. and that that whole notion, and even when he shoots the, and that's the, the weaver gun too. That's the yeah. weaver gun in Melville. Yeah, Ab- absolutely. And when he when he shoots the doe, the passage is grass and blood, blood and stone, mm-hmm. stone the dark medallions that the first flat drops of rain caused upon them. He remembered Alejandra and the sadness he'd first seen the slope of her shoulders, which he'd presumed to understand and of which he knew nothing. And he felt a loneliness he'd not known since he was a child. He felt wholly alien to the world, although he loved it still. He thought that in the beauty of the world were hid a secret. He thought the world's heart beat at some terrible cost, and that the world's pain and its beauty moved in relationship with diverging equity. And then this headlong deficit, the blood of multitudes, might ultimately be exacted for the vision of a single flower. Yeah. Yeah. And we're also, of course, back to Dante there. When the speaker moves from Purgatorio to Paradise, it's all a giant rose that he sees. Yeah, you know, Scott. In terms of who's the protagonist, though, I I tend I tend to lean in your direction with respect to Billy, but that's only because there's at least two two stories that are going on, or two parallel stories in the trilogy as a whole. On the one hand, we've got the story about modernity and about the fact that both of these characters are ill-adapted to the modern world. And it's a 
you know, these images of the Cold War, images of modernity, all of the of the trappings that go along with the the just pre and post war era. In that context, it's it's John Grady that's the protagonist because he's the one that's most ill adapted, and he ends up being a tragic protagonist who dies. Right. That's tragic protagonists do. But if we're talking about, and the reason I sort of lean in your direction is I think the deeper story is about the relationship of the real and the unreal, or the real and the ideal, or the real and the transcendent, uh, memory, consciousness, the past, the primordial. And that's the space that Billy occupies from the crossing forward uh, and in the end of Cities of the Plain. So in that sense, if we're talking about interiority and reflection and spirituality, all these sort of vague terms, and that level of development, then it's Billy, it seems to me. And Marty mentioned the idea of Billy as witness. And in that sense, and this is really maybe an overstatement, but Billy is a figure for the author because he is the one witnessing this and surviving to tell the tell mm-hmm. or to think the tell. Exactly. And John Grady is the the narrativized or the narrated, but he's not really the creator of the story. Mm. I'm stealing this from somebody, but somebody pointed out a long time ago that um, birth years were the same for John Grady and McCarthy, or is that right? 33? No, I don't think it can be because when does he first? He's uh, 16 and 51, right? Yeah, not for Billy, for John Grady. And so, like, it seems like you have, uh, to go back to your Jungian idea of two parts, you know, you have the older version who's jaded and has lived through it, looking back at an, you know, an idealistic self. I think John Grady's 16 and 51, okay, not quite. so okay. it's not quite, but they'd have been in high school together. So they're they're close to it as well. And, it, and one of the things that, of course, always shows up is, we have Billy's story leads up to World War II and, of course, ends with this witnessing of the Trinity test and talk about modernity announcing itself with a bang. You see it in such a major way. And John Grady's story happens after World War II, and we see what the war has done to his father and has utterly dehumanized his father mm-hmm. completely. And his father still has a certain sense of pride but beyond that, I, I don't know if we're meant to see anything else left to his father. Mm-hmm. He's he's dying. He's He doesn't have steady work. He's mostly playing poker. And he leaves a few legacy artifacts with his son. But other than that, the father's kind of just poof, gone mm-hmm. from, from John Gray's life as soon as John Gray leaves town, right? There's no search to bring him back that we know of. There's no uh, – I mean, we don't know all this stuff. Maybe things happen we don't know about. Mm-hmm. But – it, it's interesting to think of John Grady, on the one hand, is not happy with the matriarch. He's mad at his mother, but his, his identification with the old patriarch is through his mother's line. His grandfather who raised him, and it's his grandfather's pictures on the wall. It's his grandfather's pistol and slicker he wears, and, it, and he takes down to Mexico as well. So there's a, there's a lot of just how John Grady comes to define himself and moving forward and is assembled the past. A lot of that's kind of willful trying to make his own narrative, maybe in a way that, you know, governed by nostalgia and romanticizing Mexico into something it's not as well. Goes back to Steve's point about the trilogy being about this kind of triumph of modernity and 
John Grady's nostalgia is not the nostalgia for his own childhood, but for his grandfather's childhood. Well, it may, it may be sort of how we're all ill-adapted to what, what is modernity. Like, th- there seems mm-hmm. to be some of that going on, but maybe that's projecting from the passenger back onto to these books. But, yeah. but everybody seems a little bit out of place. Yeah, that's a really good point. Feel the way I do that the Billy in the first half of Crossing of Cities of the Plain is just simply not. You can understand how he maybe got there from the crossing, but he just doesn't seem to be the seem to be the same character. He almost seems like an older Lacey Rawlings than he does the Billy. I mean, Billy in the crossing, other than when he's talking to Boyd, is very taciturn and quiet. And he goes, you know, we know days on end without talking to anyone when he's in his journeys. We see a little bit of that kind of smart alecky side toward the end, but he's really not the traditional kind of smart Alex, Steve McQueen, cowpoke. But Billy from the epilogue of Cities of the Plain is a chatty Cathy. He keeps interrupting. He, he does, but he's, but he's still back in the kind of, he's cares about the things that Billy from the crossing cares about. And he's interested in things the way Billy, the crossing cares about it. and of course we're back to the thing of him going and, and meeting people to break bread with and learn from like mm-hmm. he does throughout the you know second books of the of the crossing the, the second third and fourth book of the crossing and there's a scene in the crossing which i had a long time ago i always interpreted it as straightforward with billy it's where he sort of insults the people that are drinking and he ends up taking off his hat and holding it to his chest and i took that as him really being sorry, but I, th- and I can't remember who was suggesting to me that that was like a smart aleck gesture. I still read it mm. as like, you know, Mia culpa. I'm so sorry that I hurt your feelings, but I, it might've been Diane Luce that, and, and, yeah. and Chip that disagreed with me on, on that. But I always took that as a serious gesture, but if it was smart aleck, there's a, ver- there's a little, kernel of what we were going to see in the first part of cities. You know, I, I, I'm torn on, on your whole question though, Scott, because, because on the one hand, you can imagine McCarthy just sort of accidentally dipping back into Lacey Rollins and giving us aspects of his character, especially since they have that kind of, that kind of buddy relationship. Right. I see that point. On the other hand, you can be a person it's it it just depends on what version McCarthy uh, or the narrator is focused on in the crossing versus cities of the plain because one mm. can be chatty, sarcastic joker uh, and want to be a a friend and be really be attached to your friend and at the same time be the Billy of the crossing. You can be yeah. both of those things and and yet. It, I, I get you, Scott, that it sort of reads that way. I mean, I you just you're, you immediately start thinking of Lacey Rollins again in the first sort of sort of half of Cities of the Plain. I view it as a defense mechanism. I think I think it's Billy sort of changing his personality so right. so that he doesn't have to get close to anybody, kind of to, to hold people right. at a distance a little bit. Yeah, but but I don't know that I'm right about that. When I was a kid, I went through a phase. This is probably 
third and fourth grade, maybe into fifth grade, where I read all the Hardy Boys mysteries. One of the things that astounded me was the way they acted changed, the cars were different. What I didn't realize is they were being rewritten. You know, the books were Franklin Dixon was in the Strattermeyer mm-hmm. syndicate. It's not a real person. It was just they would hire writers for work, just like Carolyn Keene and the Nancy Drew stories. And just different people would come in and write the characters. And in one story, they're learning how to fly a biplane. In later stories, they have a, a 55 Studebaker because times have changed and it's just everything different. The kids, you know, you're not looking up when was this published? How is it they've aged from 15 to 16 <laughs> over 28 years? You know, it's like like Peter Parker. So, you know, they're not ever growing older. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that would annoy me is I always liked the older brother because I was an older brother. And in some books, he was clearly the hero, the smart one, the you know, the initiator and the the, the good one. The, the younger brother, Joe, just made trouble. And in other ones, Joe was the one who you really could count on. Frank's just a stick in the mud. And it was only later I realized, well, it all depends who wrote those. And and in here, of course, we have it being written by one author with one vision. So I, it may well be that he's just gives us the crossing as a way of saying, how does he get to where he is that he wants to protect John Grady, but he also has all this bitterness in Cities of the Plain. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just he, that's what he saw in the screenplay that he worked back from, and then he moves into writing a novel. I, I would still hold to my estimation that we have two great novels and one decent novel, mm. as opposed to three great novels mm. here. And there are really interesting, weird moments in Cities of the Plain that it's hard to, that in a standalone book, make perfect sense as part of the trilogy are very weird, like the dog killing sequence. If you don't have the crossing, I think we'd just say, well, you know, it's like getting rid of dingoes in Australia. These dogs are gone feral. I just read, in fact, I think this was an essay by, or part a chapter by Lydia Cooper on this. It says this is a result of, they've gotten rid of all the national natural predators. So these domesticated animals gone feral, don't participate in part of the regular landscape in a proper way. They're just heedless and doing damage. And I think that's a pretty interesting point. But boy, after you've read that about the wolf, and then you had that last scene with him driving away the very you know smelly dog and then regretting it so horribly at the end of the crossing, killing dogs so ca- in such a cavalier fashion in the next book seems really strange, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, only in the context of the crossing. Yeah. Well, is it a mock epic sort of thing? Is it? They're they're out hunting, but they can't hunt, you know, buffalo yeah, or whatever. They wouldn't so, hunt. I mean, yeah, so decapitated dogs. Like the, it's it's really it's yeah, gross. it's blood meridian esque <laughs> actually in a weird sort of way that it's just like this God. moment of aesthetic violence that you know I wish was not in there, but maybe that's because I want to really like those two guys. And maybe yeah. that's why he puts it there is because they are no better than they should be, right? That they're they're part mm-hmm. of the, you know, the same world that Eduardo is part of, and they don't mind mm-hmm. perpetrating this awful violence. Because mm-hmm. it is like the decapitation of the dog, and then the way Magdalena is almost decapitated by having her uh, her throat slit seems uh, kind of parallel. If you divorce the our love of domesticated animals and the fact that it seems too playful as a way of simply getting rid of these uh, these you know predators you it almost becomes like the horse breaking scene in all the pretty horses their capabilities with the lasso and with running horses and running down game and 
popping a lasso around their neck and then yanking them back. It, you know, they have to be incredibly good, you know, cattlemen and, and, and cowboys to be able to do this. But I think the point is, and this is what you said, that you now you can't divorce that. You can't look at it and not see the, the horrific element of it. And maybe it is to to back us off as he does throughout all the pretty horses, any kind of hero worship or seeing these people as part of a traditional mm. Louis L'Amour, Zane Grey or Hollywood style Western where you have people who are doing great violence and who are part of a very hard land and a very hard time and then prettying them up and making them nice and sweet in a way that certainly those people would not have been. Yeah. I mean, they're still complicit in the world where, in the world where that, that's heart beats at a terrible cost. I mean, no, no one can be yeah. from that world. And I think he wants to remind us of that, even though the scene in all the pretty horses where that wonderful passage is articulated, uh, he's killing for food. You know, we all, we know that there is mindless violence that exists in this world as well. It's not all always to a purpose. And I think he wants to keep the characters complicit in that, at least at some level. I think that's to Nell's point. One of the topics I put on the outline was humanity and nature in the Border Trilogy. And I realized what I should probably have written just now is humanity, nature, and human nature in the Border Trilogy. Because it is interesting how, on the one hand, in All the Pretty Horses, we have this idea of man slowly trying to erode away at nature and put up roads, put up fences and John Grady and Lacey Rollins tell themselves they're escaping into a time in the past where you didn't have to worry about all that mm. new stuff that took you away from the life of the old time Wadis. But that's all myth making, right? Mm. That's still the introduction of European cattle and the the ways these animals have and the care for them has totally changed the landscape and moved away from the natural world is still part of this past they're trying to escape into. It's not really some kind of pure idealistic uh, Eden. It is in itself a harshly negotiated landscape that's been damaged by humans. In the crossing, Billy seems to learn the lesson much more so as he goes on these rides and tries to help the wolf and finds there's no place to take that wolf where people won't come after her. But at the end, of course, we have man's most fierce, horrific visitation upon nature in the atomic bomb test. Mm -hmm. And there's nowhere to go. I think that in, you know, you, The Crossing is the earliest of these books in terms of chronology and when it's set. But you see, you see that sort of progress there too. And I think it's telling that at the beginning, at the end of the first chapter, you know, they're going to the fair where all these people have assembled. It's a, it's a great crowd of folks. And then the wolf is ended, and there's Billy sort of rides out with it on the pommel of saddle or whatever, and there are all these fireworks are going off, and and it struck me that the imagery there of the light in the nighttime is very very similar to the very uh -huh. end of the crossing. It's just smaller, but but it it tied those two things together in my mind in a way that I'd never noticed. That's a great observation. But then you have cities of the plain in which it's all much accelerated because the ranch is going to be gone to make way for a military base and whatever else, you know, it, it's all 
like as 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 time goes on things tend to speed up Hmm. well and just that whole notion that we're being dispossessed of our land and it's not fair gee i wonder if you guys were the first ones who ever think that (laughs) in this area (laughs) maybe there's some people living here before who felt much the same way at the coming of the American military and the coming of the settlers. What about just that whole, the fact that Billy just can't find a home after he goes to find Boyd's body. And to me, you get some of the bleakest scenes in all of literature. He finds the body and then the bandits come upon him. They kick his brother's bones apart. They stab his horse and leave. I mean, it's just a horrific sequence and it's made up very soon after by how nice the Romany people come and how well they treat him and they nurse the horseback. But, you know, Billy, they tell him this is, there's no charge for a man of the road. Right. And it's in Spanish, of course. And Billy says, I'm not a man of the road. They go, well, sure you are. And then later, of course, he's, he never settles down. He's homeless. More or less. I mean, he has a home, but it's not his home in the later stages of the book. What do you guys think about all that? And he's warned by that fellow at the at the beginning of chapter two that that he should not be an orphan. That way is dangerous. And you shouldn't go through the world as though you're only a spectator mm. because you're not. Right. The thing that sticks with me is that guy's dress. He's ah. dressed like a gypsy, sort of. He has he has uh planets and stars and stuff on his road. You know, and I think, Marty, that accounts for the the Lacey Rawlings like Billy we get early in, in Cities of the Plain. And that is, it's a moment where he's, you know, I'm just recalling those scenes. It, now you've written about this, where he is, you know, saying, yeah, I'm forgetting the exact language, you know, don't you love this life? Uh, don't we love this life? And there's a, there's a sense that he's, that Billy's reaching to John Grady and all the people at, at Max Ranch for that community. And and I think he's being, and that Billy, the Billy of the early part of Cities of the Plain, is being anticipated as if he learned or listened to that very message, Marty, that, that was articulated to him in The Crossing. Yeah. Oh. Lacey is successfully re-domesticated at the end of All the Pretty Horses and is trying to yeah. get John Grady in different terms, but to get him to find a home like Maybe you get a job on an yeah. oil rig, right? Like right? You don't have to be this wandering guy. And and Billy, it takes a while, but, you know, the very end, I mean, a lot of people have talked about that scene with Betty. Maybe it's not his home, but it's like reconstituting that d- domestic sphere with a mother right. figure, right? Who, you know, could be his granddaughter, but she's still a mother figure to him. She gives him water at the end. She She gives him, she brings him water. There's almost a sacramental quality to their relationship. Absolutely. And that whole Eucharistic symbolism shows up throughout McCarthy yeah. as well. Over oh, and no, over just again. I think about the water bearer something. and Sutri, right? Like, yeah. I, I never yeah. put Betty in with that till Steve said that, but it's good. What do you make of all the bells ringing and, and the bells ring throughout the crossing and all the pretty horses? I don't remember if there's one in Cities of the Plain. So if you were looking for something written by some literary predecessor that perfectly captures the overall theme, the one single unifying theme of the Border Trilogy, it has to be John Donne, doesn't it? And so the same sermon 
that says, send not for whom the bell tolls, know that it tolls for thee, is the exact same sermon. It says, no man is an island, but is part of a continent, and the death of any one man diminishes us all. The death of any one person diminishes us all. It's all part of the same meditation, Mm -hmm. and I should know which one it is off the top of my head, but I don't. I think that's exactly what that's about. I first noticed that from one of Peter Joseph's essays, I think, or maybe a talk he gave. Marty, and I've been thinking about the bells for a long time because that, or maybe it's something when you and Peter, in one of the books, The Wrong Reader's Guide, maybe you're all going back and forth in one of your exchanges, and that's where I first started thinking about it. But I believe it's a John Donne reference because it, we could really take that beautiful sequence in the in the epilogue and reduce it almost to that those John Donne phrases, is, I think. Is anybody Catholic? <laughs> I'm only this staff. My mom was Catholic, so I'm not. I'm just thinking of like the importance of the bells in the mass. Like that has like the spiritual representation in the mass, Hmm. which is why John Donne used it as a a metaphor, secret Catholic that he was. But also Hmm. what I was thinking mischievously is that um, I did rewatch It's a Wonderful Life for Thanksgiving and the whole notion of, you know, angels getting their wings it sort of seems like there's it's more dire in in mccarthy but there sure are a lot of bells ringing and all the goodness tends to be off screen so i don't know which brings us going back a a bit ago to what you guys were talking about billy's search for community is and you've written about this pretty extensively now but it's definitely worth our attention is the way that the girlfriend figure and I would like to add to this, the dead Margaret figure is used in the trilogy. So we have Alejandra, who becomes this kind of symbol, you know, Gatsby-esque symbol of John Grady having made it a super cowboy in All the Pretty Horses, except not because he thinks he's star of the story. And she thinks she's star of the story in her story and refuses to kind of play by John Grady's rules in, in some way, I, I believe. And then Magdalena, who puts her faith in John Grady, and we would say, unfortunately and sadly, tragically, she should not have. And then maybe we go on to the to the two dead Margarets in a second. So Nell and I have talked before about just, I have some issues of love and death in American novel with Leslie Fiedler, but the whole notion of the American story over and over again being homosocial about the two buddies going off to do stuff rather than creating a domestic domesticated space or a heterosexual domesticated space, it certainly plays out in this trilogy, right? Is mm-hmm. John Grady and Lacey go off and then they run into Blevins. And when he runs into a romantic relationship, everything falls apart, largely due to his own fault. Mm-hmm. In this story, the romantic relationship causes everything to fall apart in their little bachelor's paradise they have there mm-hmm. out at the ranch. Um, and I, I use that term ironically, of course. Mm-hmm. So, or I saved this story in Cities of the Plain when it happened. So, mm-hmm. I don't know it. What all do you think uh, without having to go back and recover uh, 150 pages of your writing now? You know what I think. But uh, I do think it's kind of interesting that it's not just women that are in the plot that are killed off, but it's these ancillary characters that are just spoken of that have to be dead. And what, you know, the two yeah. dead Margaret's and I've talked about this a little at a conference and I'm still working on it. The, the, the way that Max Margaret becomes this sort of sentimental icon. She's like the perfect, you know, everybody says good things about her, even Billy who's crusty at this point, but she's never there, right? Like 
her goodness is sort of part and parcel of her deadness. And then you get, you know, she's yeah. the counterpoint to the Magdalena, who is a whore, not by any of her own fault, but she is a whore and aspires to be that sentimental wife, but is, is prevented. Right. Uh, but once she is dead, she does visit Billy in that dream. Billy was not at all for anything Magdalena at all. But then when she's dead, she becomes this person he trusts and, you know, does what yeah. she seems to be asking to do, which would not have happened if she were a living girl. So, um, and his dead sister, Margaret, which is kind of like parallel to Sheriff Bell's dead daughter, right? Like that's, that he talks to right. and, you know, he tells us that, but she's not a character, right? She was never there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't really, I'm still working on what I make of that, but it does sort of seem that it's, um, I don't know, I use the wrong term here, but it's, it's almost like a beard placed on the trilogy that, oh no, I don't hate women. I really like these women, except for they're dead. I do like them. And then I'll put one at the very, very end. So you know that I really like them. Is that Betty Ward? You know, I think Betty was a pretty common name and I've heard people say that, but wasn't Betty Ward kind of a sexy mama gambler, uh, poker player? Mm, Betty Ward was one of the girlfriends. Well, well, it's Lacey's, but she's based on like some Betty that was in McCarthy's orbit. That was the the gambler woman. I don't know. I, I, yeah. Betty with the hole in her eyes because he shoots the wallet. But, um, well, if nothing else, it's just strange that we just keep using the same names over and over. I mean, in in other places, those are, I don't know, like Twain does it and he's just kind of lazy about it. Everyone, you know, girls, Mary Ann or Mary Jane or something like that. But, Mm -hmm. but McCarthy's case, when he's so picky about such things and everything seems loaded with freight, then we just kind of look at it like, okay, you got a Betty and you got a Betty and you got a Margaret and you got a Margaret. And it, it just seems strange that of all the names he could have used for the dead uh, wife in cities of the plane that he chooses the one that has the same name as the dead sister and for Billy. I just want to throw in there, like, not Catholic, but McCarthy was and Elizabeth, Margaret, and Mary are very common Catholic names. My mother was Margaret, right? An important saying. But right. Elizabeth, a super important character because she's the mother of John the Baptist, right? Right. And part of what may be going on here is that we're evoking saints, which means we're evoking whatever those saints are the patrons of in those cases as well. I mean, obviously, Magdalena is you know Mary Magdalene, which not really scripturally, but in tradition— perhaps had a a life as a prostitute before. Well, that's like an 18th century invention, though, if you look back on it. Correct. Well, and the, the whole end of, of Cities of the Plain is is Billy and John Grady as, you know, Mary and Jesus. And, yeah, and, there's a and, Pieta kind of yeah. thing going and, on there for a while. And since yeah. Elizabeth, Betty's mother, John the Baptist, that makes Billy... John the Baptist and, and John Grady, Jesus. Ah, well, and his initials are JC. So. Right. A- and I know that McCarthy would, if he were alive, would probably want to shoot me for saying that because that's so oversimplified and such a 
1962 reading of the text. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one of the things that, that's fascinating about reverting back to just thinking of Billy, you know, and John the Baptist carrying the Christ figure. And, of course, John the Baptist dies before Jesus and loses his head and all that. So it's it gets dead. a little wonky. But when Billy goes to confront the pimps and Eduardo and people at the brothel, he carries his pistol. And he's very quick to throw a punch, to kick down a door, to keep a gun out on people, which is exactly what we want John Grady to do at the Mm -hmm. end of the novel. Instead, he decides to get into another knife fight. He didn't come out really well the first time (laughs) and almost died. And so I think there is a bit of a death wish or suicidal Mm -hmm. element or just this atavistic primal need to kill Eduardo as brutally as possible, a single gunshot in an unfair fight wouldn't make him happy enough. But there's a foolishness to it, right? A stupidity to it. What's a little Campian cinematic in some ways, Campian in a cinematic way, is that as the knife fight is taking place in the cities of the plane, that's when or one of the moments when Eduardo is is fully articulating his worldview. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's talking about the plain nature of things and he's, you know, he's, you know, really sermonizing while he's fighting. And you almost, this is kind of lame, I guess, but it's almost as if it's his words and his perspective that John Grady is attacking as much as he is the guy who was oppressing Magdalene. Right. He's as antagonistic toward that kind of hyper-realistic worldview, which I maintain is is at least partially feigned on Eduardo's part. Ah, and it, well, the killing blow, and yeah. Nell just mimed this. I don't know if it's on purpose, <laughs> but I think it was on purpose. The killing blow, the knife goes through the bottom of the, you know, the chin up through the mouth and into the, the, stump you know, the tongue. brain <laughs> that way. So you're right. Yeah. To just shut him up, you know, Thinking that. Yeah. Been monologuing and monologuing. <laughs> it's like when you see pop stars doing extreme high caliber aerobics and presumably singing. And I don't care who you are and what kind of shape you're in. You're not carrying a tune if you're doing the equivalent of, you know, Marine Corps calisthenics mm-hmm. at the same time. So we know there's a whole lot of in these way 20 years after Millie Vanilli, we're, we're still seeing the, I think no one cares anymore that they're just lip syncing sometimes and singing sometimes. And and that's the whole thing with Eduardo. He can carry on a monologue and yeah. an eye fight at the same time. <laughs> so Eduardo is this novel's version of Dwayne Alfonso. Right? right. And we have all these figures of wisdom throughout the crossing, but there's no one single person who has, the weight of those two characters in the crossing, you know, it's more like that role is divided out into a series of different speakers and seers, but somehow Duane Alfonso has so much more gravitas and authority and power, I think, than Eduardo does. And maybe it's because she too, though, just as you say, Stephen, she's a, she's a figure of reality. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how you feel about Mexico. Here's the reality for, for Alejandra, here's what I want for her. Mm-hmm. And if she fools around with you, it'll never happen. So we've got to get rid of you. Right. I think that Duane Alfonso is philosophically grounded in all these questions of fate and free will and determinism and all of that. I mean, that's the the foundation for her ultimate conclusions. I think one of the things we can do, 
and I think this redeems the cities of the plain and Eduardo is a, uh, not as a positive character, but I think we can view, we can read Eduardo is the outcome of that worldview. Uh. So he's not necessarily going to be the one who articulates all its deeper philosophical dimensions, but he is the one that's going to express its social manifestations, uh, and that is a plain and realistic world that lacks adornment and uh, and any any possibility of ideal realization. Right. He's kind of the captain and Perez Mm-hmm. Satio from the captain who first arrests John Grady and kills Blevins, mixed mm-hmm. with Perez from the prison and Duena. The, those three kind of combined into one character in Eduardo, mm-hmm. in a yeah. way. If John Grady, so Nell asked before, if John Grady lived, does he become more like Billy? And, you know, it is, as I read the novel again recently, I still find myself very much affected when John Grady dies. And I find myself wishing he wouldn't die, but I cannot imagine him being able to survive Magdalena's death and his admitted, this is the literary critic as opposed to someone dealing with real people, culpability Mm -hmm. in it, right? Should I blame a guy that wants to rescue a woman from being held against her will in a brothel? No. Should I say it's really stupid to think you could just arrange with the cabbie to rescue her? Instead of bringing Billy and all your buddies down with all their guns and going in and grabbing them or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the mm-hmm. smartest plan I've ever heard of. <laughs> but it, it is hard for me to think of John Grady being able to recover from that, from the guilt of that sequence in the way that Billy, I could imagine recovering from it because of what happens with Boyd, what happens to his family and all that guilt he's already shouldered. No one's died because of John Grady other than people trying to kill him that he killed first until Magdalena. Billy's got the thing with his parents. He took the gun away, and maybe he helped educate the roving uh, Native American guy on here's how to Mm -hmm. sneak into the house, deal with the dog. And you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a lot of guilt Billy carries that John Grady has not had to carry. Well, you know, I I think, too, Scott, that, that, you know, whatever, we've talked a little bit earlier about whether or not John Grady has a bit of a death wish. Well, whatever sort of death wish is sort of fermenting in his character early on, I think might become fully realized if he were to survive and Magdalena after Magdalena's death. I think we would get a marginally suicidal John Grady, perhaps. I think that seems to me more plausible than him turning into a kind of pragmatist. Hmm. Say, Say that both he and Magdalena live. Do you think they're actually going to go and live in the little house with the white picket fence and, you know, have a family and be all domestic. That's not been John Grady's life. No. Doesn't seem to want it. Yeah, but, you know, well, the thing is, he hasn't had much life, right? He's at home until he's 16, then he's got two years and he's dead. The thing is, as McCarthy gets older, it is very peculiar, and this is something Nels pointed out. On the one hand, he becomes extremely, extremely romanticizes matrimony. When you go through, I, I just reread for when they, whenever I get to the, the pod coming up soon for No Country for Old Men, I just reread it. And the constant, you know, sanctification of marriage and particularly of Carla Jean and oh, what is Loretta. Bella's wife? I just. Sweet Loretta. Loretta. The constant sanctification of their purity and how great they are and how much that affects everything in the story is really just kind of batters at you throughout that book. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit here with the 
dead missing Margaret and how they all look back on her. I mean, not mm-hmm. just her dad and husband look back on her, but also the entire ranch crew all see her as, you know, the, the saint who's passed away. So I, I don't know in terms of how he's created them, Marty, he seems to have made it in a very, to me, in a very weird way, given what the books are always about and they never has a happy marriage happen to a main character. It, it seems to be this almost elusive future that is unattainable in some way or another. I, I don't know. It's a good question. It, is where they build, let me ask this, where, they, where he has that little house, is that area going to be given over to the military when they take over? So would it only been two years they were in it anyway or whatever? Yeah. It's I, on I, Mac's I, ranch. Yeah. Doesn't Mac... I mean, remind me, but something is going to be retained of the ranch because Mac promises, I think John Grady, one of the two or both, that they will always have a place with him. Yeah, but I thought they were going to be moving on to a new ranch and he would just have Maybe. to okay. He okay. would just take them there. Sure. Okay. I don't know. It may be made clearer in the novel than I realize, or it may be a very clear indication that, that John Grady is still doing some magical thinking. Yeah. As he's, right. as he's done since we first meet him right he's not disabused of his idealism or magical thinking or whatever you want to call it by by blevins's death though he takes it really hard and blames himself Mm. he still remains this sort of idealistic hero sort of character yeah he never has time to grow out of it right i think i've said this before on the podcast, and I probably said you guys for, but Romeo and Juliet only makes sense when you remember it's about teenagers. Mm-hmm. Because when you're 24 and 26 and you say, oh, this person killed themselves, I'm so in love with them, you don't say, I have to kill myself now. You say, well, that's really awful. I'm going to, this is going to take a while to get over, and then I'm going to move on with my life. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, 14 or 15 year old. Oh, if this doesn't work out, the life is over. It'll it's never be worth it after all. It's horrible. And I do think one of the ways that I, you know, I, I thought the acting and the casting and the film of all the pretty horses was, was really pretty good. I was very impressed how good Matt Damon was in role, given my incredibly low expectation when it all first happened and came out. And I really thought Henry Thomas, who I didn't realize was Texan until later, was perfect for Rollins. But one of the things that's weird is these are guys in their early 20s who look like college students. And the the story never implies in the film that they're still high school kids. Yeah. But it only makes sense if you think of them as high school kids Mm. in a way. Mm -hmm. And here again, he's just 18 when the story ends. Yeah. I want to take up one of the questions that you you articulated only because you articulated a theory in the past and and uh, when we were talking that you can read these novels as what did you say you said the first sixty percent oh yeah first sixty percent of Cities of the Plain is is a sequel to All the Pretty Horses right. and the last forty percent of Cities of the Plain is a sequel to The Crossing that had never occurred to me. But I, it rings 
it, it's fascinating. I wouldn't want to reread them to sort of confirm my agreement, but I do think that your first claim, that is that that the lesser novel is uh, Cities of the Plain, is true if you treat it differently. But if you treat it the way you're treating it in the context of of the sequence, I think it very much redeems it because it completes both of those other novels in a very remarkable way, the way you've articulated. You need to write that up. And I think it's like particularly important right now as everybody's trying to understand The Passenger and Stella Maris, that it's the same phenomenon. These novels, if you take them on their own, are not great, right? Are not wonderful. But when you recognize that they are sort of completing ideas that appeared earlier, I think I didn't think about it that way either. And I'd love to be able to draw from that because it does seem like a good way to read Cities of the Plain that redeems it, as Scott said. Yeah. Well, I do think that John Grady's story rounds itself out and makes perfect sense the way it resolves. And to me, the only inconsistency is how Billy behaves in that first portion and then reading Billy's continuing journeys at the end, if we attach that to the end of the crossing, it just makes so much sense because there's nothing that makes you think in the crossing he's going to find peace. Yeah. And so the the two things which happen then to complete Billy's story is that the final seer, you could call him right, the man who tells him, you know, will you will you give your life for that man? Will you, you know, every man's life is just standing in for one another's. Will you give your life for that man? As he says there at the overpass and the, the man he breaks bread with that final Eucharistic sacramental experience. And then he does find that home. He finds Betty. He finds the warmth and someone who just, regardless of who he is, where he comes from, just gives him human compassion and belonging. And it is kind of a beautiful ending. And of course, the real ending of the book is of the trilogy. I'll be your child to hold and you be me when I am old. The world grows cold, the heathen rage, the stories told, turn the page. Mm-hmm. I still remember that that hitting me like a ton of bricks when the first time I finished the trilogy. Well, I think Scott, I, I'm going to second just what Nell said. You, you know, that needs to be artic- that idea needs to be articulated in writing, and the reason I think especially it does is that it challenges the whole idea. We, we're talking about the passenger and Stella Maris, and is it a duology, and how do you re- re- relate them, and what order should you read them, and how do they relate to one another as as separate novels? And you know, our, I think the general consensus is that he's genre busting. Yeah, in a very interesting way, especially with temporality, and uh, and I think that's what you're on to with this this notion. And is is it really a trilogy mm. in a conventional sense? If you read it the way that you're suggesting, it would explain the callousness of Billy because it's actually implicitly from John Grady's viewpoint, and we don't have access to that interior Billy until the end of Cities of the Plain, right? So from John Grady's perspective. Billy is this ancillary character, right? He's not the star. And I'm stealing that from somebody in this. Uh, and Scott, you said it, you know, Alejandro wants to be the star of the show and John Grady wants to be the star of the show, but they can't both be. Right. And it's to his, I don't, I don't want to say shame. It's to his detriment. He doesn't understand earlier his role in her story as opposed to the other way around. Understand his role in anyone's story, really. I mean, you, right. you mentioned right. his the guilt that he'd have to live with. But if he did, if, if he really thought about Magdalena's best interest, he would have gone about things very differently, but he was thinking about his narrative and the story that he has in his head of how his life is supposed to be. 
And I think you could argue self-reliance taken to a point of a character fault. If he'd have really gone and explained to people, this is what I'm up against, this is what I'm thinking. And if he'd really explained to Mac and the others, okay, it's not just a girl. It's also a girl who has this obsessive, creepy guy who's around her and she's got epilepsy and she's kind of famous in this one brothel. You know, at some point, Maybe he's not telling him because he doesn't want to tell him that's stupid. You can't do any of this. But he wants to control everything by not sharing the facts. He gets to do what he wants to do. And he guarantees failure because of that need to control everything. Steve, you said before that All the Pretty Horses is your favorite one to read. You think the best of all is Blood Meridian, but your favorite one to go back to over and over again is All the Pretty Horses. Marty, you listed The Crossing as your favorite novel. So, Nell, where do you, if we take the trilogy or if you want to pull books out and do them separately, where do you rank these? I believe Outer Dark, no, Child of God was the one that you think is, was it's, your number it's one for a while. best novel as a novel. I think Child of God is. I Yeah, I have a hard time. I think they're very important. And I recognize the popular appeal of all the pretty horses, like why that works for me, of the three, it has to be The Crossing, which I might put in the top four. But it's, I will say this, I, I have a easier time teaching all the pretty horses. It's very teachable, maybe because of the age yeah. of many college students. I've only tried to teach yeah. The Crossing once, and, and um, I, I just, it was not successful. <laughs> hard. I had the exact same experience. I've taught all three of them, but not in a class where I taught it as a trilogy which would be fun to do, but where I've usually every other year in a American novelist since World War II or American writers since World War II class, I teach all the pretty horses. And one time I substituted The Crossing and one time I substituted Seize of the Plane. And Seize of the Plane, I spent all my time explaining, well, see, what you don't know to happen before <laughs> is yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it, it was just miserable. And The Crossing, I had one, I actually had two kids in a class, about 19, 20 students who just fell in love with it and were obsessed with it and read, went out and read the rest of the trilogy and they came in and we had coffee and talked about it. Everyone else hated it and hated me. Mm. And it's just, it's just, it was too challenging for them and too, too daunting. When you said the crossing, were you also saying it's in your top three or four overall McCarthy novels? Were you going to say that? Well, or did I, miss just, it? I, I Maybe top four. I, I have such a hard time narrowing down Yeah, that it changes every week. Right. Yeah. I love Blood Meridian in one way. Love is the wrong word, but admire it. And I I have a soft spot for Outer Dark because that was my first one and it still scares me in ways the others don't. I think Child of mm-hmm. God is a perfect little gem, but the crossing is so weighty and thought provoking and philosophical. And I can see why I understand why it doesn't work for me and my teaching style as a, a teachable text, because it's a, a talking novel with, of, it means more right. talking mm-hmm. than action. And I wish that McCarthy had not been opposed to anthologizing. Cause I think the, the first part of the crossing would be great addition to the Norton or the Heath just to teach on its own. Yeah. I think we talked about that, like how we teach go down Moses. We, you know, don't usually teach all three, but now, Scott, let me, let me qualify though. You know, when I talked to you uh, before about my favorite read, it remains in many ways, all the pretty horses, but I did make that distinction between, between this amorphous category significance, which I, or, or, or masterpiece status. 
and I associated that with Blood Meridian. For me, the crossing approach is Blood Meridian yeah. in that way. And so of the three, you know, I suppose as a thinking academic, I don't know what, you know, I'm being crude in my expression, of the three, the greatest, the one that resonates most and most deeply is the crossing for me. I have great love for all the pretty horses because I do get caught up in the story of John Grady and Rollins and Alejandra, and I do get caught up in his response. And there's a part of me that does respond to his lack of willingness to adapt Mm -hmm. to the worst things about 20th 20th century life and his ridiculous need to hold on to the way things used to be, even as he's so, I don't know, there's a beauty in the foolishness, I guess I would say. Yeah. But on the other hand, the one that I think is just incredible is the crossing. And it's the one that just blows me away over and over again. And every time I read it, I feel like I've read it for the first mm-hmm. time because there's some new passage that stands out to me. There's some new part that stands out to me. And one of the things that I've enjoyed over the years is watching it steadily climb in yeah. people's estimation because there's an awful lot of. And maybe this was not among McCarthy scholars, but among critics and mainstream critics who are really, you know, book reviewers. Early on, it didn't seem to get much respect, and it has slowly but surely taken on more and more of a kind of estimation in people's eyes, I think, in those years. Now, Marty, you definitely listed The Crossing as your personal favorite, right? Yes, I did. And I, I will say about all the pretty horses, however, when when I read it this time, I was stunned by the way that chapter one ends. It's sort of everybody has, you know, he, he's got all of the plates spinning all at one time. And you've it, everything yep. that you need to know for the rest of that novel to happen is right there at the beginning of the first book. And that's a sort of stunning structural a- achievement in my mind. Like All the Pretty Horses is almost a perfectly plotted book. And it's really hard to argue with it in that way. I think the crossing deals with a bunch of metaphysical stuff that all the pretty horses kind of glances at. And the crossing in endlessly rewards rereading and 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 all of that. Yeah. But all the pretty horses is also my first McCarthy book. I'm partial to it as well. I think probably for Nell and I, who were Southern lit people who joined on a little bit before to all the pretty horses, it was a really heady time in the nineties because 92, of course, it's, what, seven years or so after Blood Meridian, you have all the pretty horses. Just two years later, you have The Crossing. And then you have to wait four years for Cities of the Plain. And that seemed slow. But when you went back and looked at, well, 79 to 85, we just got lucky that all the pretty horses in The Crossing came out right Mm -hmm. next to each other. And I don't think we realized it would then be 10 more, you know, almost 10 years until we get No Country for Old Men. And then I was astounded that The Road came out the next year. So yeah. it's a very strange time of, uh, we're trying to figure out earlier what that sound was. I think we have a small <laughs> dog, or is it possibly oh. a, a goblin that was trying to get into the Marty's, or Big a dog, dog yes, goblin. Or dog. Looks, like a, looks like a, it's a border collie for the border trilogy. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and barked on, barked on cue. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, thank you guys again for coming. My guests today were Nell Sullivan, Stephen Fry, and Marty Priola. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the music for Reading McCarthy. Steve, please make sure to tell Thomas we all said hello. And as always, thanks for his 
ongoing contribution to the podcast. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or employers or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download, follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us. You can provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast hosted by myself and Kirk Kernot. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite the evening redness in the West, Reading McCarthy is also still nominally on X, Twitter, Twitter X, whatever it is this week. And I don't know how much long that will be lasting. But the website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you guys for coming.